This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle. When you consider women to watch in the world of food, one you should be thinking of is Priya Krishna. Once a wannabe diplomat turned a DIY food detective, Priya is currently a regular contributor for The New York Times, Bon Appetit, The New Yorker, and the author of the upcoming book, Indian-ish. Coming up, you'll hear from Priya about a new spin on the Indian-American kitchen, the journey to an extraordinary story about an immigrant family, thoughts on nourishment, nabbing a coveted job at an early age, why discipline and hard work are a crucial ingredient to pretty much everything, the effort to not give in to imposter syndrome, and why being a food writer is hardly as easy or glamorous as it seems. In the vast culinary landscape we share, we are all carving out a place for ourselves. Each of us, in our own way, is a one-woman kitchen. I'm Roseanne Gold, and welcome to my kitchen. It is so good to have you here today. And I love how we met, which is actually very recent. We met at a birthday party for a 99-year-old female culinary icon. It was kind of like the most glamorous way to meet, right? I it can't was. think of a better way. <laughs> we were seated uh, seated across each other from at a table uh, at a wonderful kind of fast casual restaurant mm-hmm. called Junzi Kitchen. Junzi yeah. Kitchen with Chef Lucas, who created this extraordinary meal in honor of Cecilia Chang. I mean, that meal, I still think about it to this day. I actually went back to Junzi Kitchen for another one of their sort of sit down tasting menus. And I thought Lucas Sin is like one of the most sort of interesting up and comers in food right now. Like 10 years from now, I f- bet you that guy is going to be splashed about Everywhere. I, I agree with you. He has a sensibility that's extraordinary. And to use this kind of um, great innovation and mastery and bring it down to the fast casual um, niche is inspired, right? So yeah. younger people don't have to spend a lot of money and they're eating really great food. But, you know, when I think about One Woman Kitchen and I think about you and I think about Cecilia Chang, um, wow, you know, women are so powerful. And it's only really right now that we are, um, I think, being paid attention to in the way that we really uh, deserve and have really fought hard for. Um, so Priya, what comes to mind when you hear the phrase one woman kitchen? Um, <laughs> what really comes to mind yeah. is thinking about how my mother would come home from work at 6 and have to put dinner on the table by 6.30. She would chop her vegetables. She'd get the rice going. She'd cook the dal. She'd have the vet, the subzi for the, the vegetables for the subzi in one pan. And doggone it, she was going to have dinner on the table at 6.30. And she always did. Like my sister and I would meander down at 6.30 and dinner would be ready on the dot. We'd set the table. We'd eat. My dad would do the dishes. My mom was the embodiment of a one-woman kitchen. Wow. How great. (laughs) So we need to have her on the show too. Oh, yeah. Definitely. If she wasn't so busy all the time. (laughs) Yeah. this is So so let's go backwards uh, a little bit in time. Um, I really want to place you in your childhood kitchen. I 
have already heard a little bit about it. But your mother, what I, I understand, was a really important uh, executive in the tech world. And the fact that she would come home at six and f- give herself just 30 minutes. So so why the 30 minute thing? Because she had some ideas about a family should eat together at 630 or? Uh, I mean, if it was mostly just because we were starving by the time she came home. <laughs> she might have been and, too. Right? Yeah, she was probably starving as well. But we were not only starving, but complaining to her about how much we were starving. And so I'm sure six six thirty was the earliest possible time she she could get food on the table, and we just could not wait until seven or seven thirty. We had to eat at six thirty. Well, she sounds like a very systematic, very organized, very oh, efficient. I mean, uh, she's woman. a she's a programmer by training, wow. so it's very much built into her training and her DNA. So recipes are like little programs, aren't they? But did she use recipes? What kind of food did she cook? She basically cooked almost entirely by intuition. You'll find in, in India and in Indian culture, cookbooks and writing down recipes isn't as much of a thing. Uh, food traditions are often passed down orally. And interestingly enough, my mom did not learn to cook in India. Her mother just like could not be bothered to cook. <laughs> she didn't like it. You know, there are people who like to cook, people for whom it feels like a chore. And my grandmother was the latter. So she would go to her grandmother's house and just sit perched on the counter and watch her grandmother cook. And her grandmother was a very passionate cook. And then when she immigrated here, she didn't really know how to make anything except roti. And so she started watching these cooking shows on PBS and combining the techniques she was learning from people like Jacques Pepin with her (laughs) memories of her grandmother's cooking. Mm. And she sort of just taught herself how to make Indian food and taught herself how to make a bunch of other kind of food, kinds of food too. And my dad was sort of the guinea pig early on in their marriage. <laughs> he would just eat whatever she would cook. And um, mm. what my mom realized is that she had just this really innate sense of how to put flavors and ingredients together. And so she developed this cooking that was sort of by its very nature Indian American. It was very hybridized. It wasn't, you know, strictly something – that only used Indian ingredients that incorporated olive oil because my mom loved the fruity taste of olive oil with spices. She used roti as a base for pizza. She put feta cheese in her sag paneer. Mm. Um, She was just doing all these amazing, innovative things. Um, It was just sort of this incredible evolution. And I don't think I fully appreciated it until I started this cookbook project. Yes, we definitely want to talk about (laughs) that. So this new book, that will be coming out in 2019. Mm-hmm. Who is publishing it, by the way? Uh, Houghton Mifflin Harcourt, HMH. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. They're fabulous publishers. Um, so it's coming out in 2019, and it's called Indian-ish, yeah. which is fantastic because as you were describing how your mother was cooking, I'm thinking, what would we actually call this cuisine? Is it fusion? Is it hybrid? <laughs> I have an- another phrase of borderless but I guess you really nailed it. It's Indian-ish. It's very funny because Indian-ish was the uh, – on the book proposal was the placeholder title I put. And I literally <laughs> wrote Indian-ish and then in brackets I wrote like, better title to come. Oh, is that great? And then I sat in this meeting with HMH and they were like, we don't want another title. We want Indian-ish. And I was like, really? <laughs> it's, it's wonderful. And I feel so lucky because um, you – were able to send me the galleys to the to your book. And I've never described a book like this before. I mean, it's visually compelling, but I had the funniest feeling when I was going through it. I hope you like my reaction to it. 
Priya, it felt alive. I felt like this <laughs> book was alive. And I said, wow. And and your parents are characters. I mean, so it was almost like this living novel, this sort of creative nonfiction piece with food and parents and people having opinions. And uh, your mother's very glamorous, as are you. And I'm very into mothers. So I really love the connection that the two of you had. And then later on, I actually read that you really were not best friends, but there was something, it felt like that when I looked at the book. Um, So maybe you can explain that a little bit, but I think the book is going to do very well. And thank you for introducing us to some strange ingredients. I do love Indian food. I've visited uh, India, have many uh, Indian friends, and I've never been very comfortable with the, um, I don't cook Indian food because I always found it to be a little bit complicated. Uh, not always easy to get the ingredients, but you may tell me otherwise. And I actually have a package of frozen curry leaves in my freezer. So, um, you know, thank you for making it possible for us to start to really explore these wonderful, intense flavors. I I did get a chance to see you on um, a Bon Appetit Mm -hmm. video in in their test kitchen. And I have to say that you are fantastic <laughs> Thank you. Uh, on camera. You really are. But can you tell us about this dish you made? It's called dahi, D-A-H-I, toast. Not an avocado in sight, no. but on top <laughs> of it, right? On top of it, you pour something called, and I love this word. I've been saying it all day, <laughs> chunk. It just is, it sounds like what it is, I think. It's a great chunk. word. <laughs> C-H-O-N-K, chunk. So tell us about dahi toast and chunk. So this is a dish that is, it's not really a, I wouldn't say it's like an official dish of Indian cuisine, but it is one of those dishes that a lot of moms have in their back pocket is like, I need to put dinner on the table. I've only got like yogurt and bread in the fridge. (laughs) What do I do? You make dahi toast. It's sort of, I would say the Indian version of a grilled cheese sandwich Ah. in both the technique and the comfort. What you're doing is you're taking two pieces of bread. My mom's innovation is that she discovered sourdough bread is the best bread because of its, you know, tanginess and lightness. And you're basically um, putting a mixture of yogurt, cilantro, red onion in the middle. um, And then you pan sear it on both sides and you top it with this thing called a chonk, which is basically uh, it's also known as like a tarka or tempered spices, but it's just uh, spices that you pan fry in oil. And in this case, you're pan frying mustard seeds and curry leaves, which are sort of bitter and earthy, but most importantly provide this sort of amazing crunch, crunchy topping on top of the dahi toast. And I have it with ketchup. My mom has it with <laughs> cilantro chutney. And my dad swirls the two together to make what he calls a super sauce. <laughs> <laughs> How great. I just thought I want uh, this. I really want to run home and make. And I just want to pour it over everything. I'm just imagining it would be fantastic on a rare skirt steak, um, maybe over a fish dish. What is this an official chunk recipe? Is it only curry leaves and mustard seed? Or does chunk refer to all different condiments where spices are cooked in oil? Chonk literally just refers to spices tempered in oil. It can Ah, be mustard seeds and curry leaves. It can be cumin seeds and coriander seeds. It can be whatever. But in the book, 
we have I have a little ode to Chonk as a concept with a sort of choose your own adventure guide to making Chonk and what you can put that on top. Like I discovered that Chonk tastes amazing on top of nachos. Like it is (laughs) the ultimate enhancer. It tastes great on noodles. A rare steak is perfect. Um on top of like the mustard seed and curry leaf chonk on like a really simple white fish is perfect. Mm. It's it's just universally delicious. You know, I have a feeling because of you and your uh, great access to many things, and we're going to talk about that in a few minutes, that this may start appearing on, on restaurant menus everywhere. Like chonk may be the new the new idea of the moment. It, it's funny that you say that because there's a <laughs> restaurant that just opened up in new, in Los Angeles called Fiona. And someone texted me um, the menu, and on the menu was a thing called dahi toast. And I just, it was, I didn't, I don't, I have no idea if it was influenced by the by the video or if they had just had it at someone else's house. But it was like very, very similar to my mom's version of dahi toast. And I, in the back of my mind, I was like, maybe they were inspired. Priya, dear, there's no question, and it really should be called Priya's Dahi Toast, and this is the way things happen. I mean, I actually have to tell you a story. This is a big conversation about um, recipe theft, and I almost hate to use that word because, you know, people are inspired, and many people even say there's no such thing as an original recipe, which I actually don't agree with. Um, I've created many original recipes, and of course, I'm always inspired and also inspired by my travels and other people, and I've been around for a long time. But there's a dish that I am so well known for, and it's called mahogany short ribs. And, you know, I'm very well known for cooking with three ingredients. And this recipe, uh, which was translated into four languages and which is in on page 176 of my first cookbook, <laughs> Recipes 1, 2, 3, um, you know, it sort of belongs to me. And it's short ribs that are, are marinated in teriyaki sauce and prune juice. Wow. And I know. And it's great, right? You can imagine all yes, of the salinity, totally. the sweetness. And then when it's reduced, it almost looks like chocolate sauce. And then one day I looked online and and this recipe had gotten a lot of likes. And then I saw, you know, I was excited for a minute. And then I saw that was someone else's name on the recipe. And yeah, and uh, I, I approached this person just saying, look, why don't you just say inspired by? And they kind of refused and just said, you know, they didn't use peppercorns. And I'm thinking, mm. you see, Priya, once upon a time, the um, the the essence, the authorship of a recipe was really, really valued. And people lost their jobs if they ever kind of appropriated a recipe and put it in in a cookbook. Um, So I think the world is changing in that way because of the internet and uh, not always having attribution. So anyway, that's a long way of telling you that this is an issue today. And there's no way that that isn't your your Priya Priya toast, Dahi toast. Anyway, let, let's start at the beginning. You have an extraordinary career already for a very young person. And um, how did you actually get started? Uh, did you start all the way at the tippy top or did I miss a few steps along the uh, way? Yeah, no, I did. <laughs> <laughs> well, let, let me also say you uh, write for, you're contributing writer for the New York Times, and we'll talk about your article on the front page today. <laughs> uh, you write for the New Yorker. You wrote for Lucky Peach. Um, you know, you're you're everywhere, and um, you're also very very respected. So, t- tell take us on the journey. Well, thank you. First of all, um, the journey honestly started in college. 
Um, I launched a column in my college newspaper, and it was called the DDS Detective. And DDS stood for Dartmouth Dining Services, my school's dining administration. And where I went to school in Hanover, New Hampshire, there were maybe four restaurants on campus. So when I wanted to do a food column, I couldn't do like a restaurant column because I would run out of subject matter. So I decided I would go into the dining halls and come up with really uh, creative meals you could make out of the ingredients found there. And every week I would write about a different one. And give me an example. So one example, I came up with this thing called a banana crumble for you <laughs> um, microwave bananas with cinnamon and honey. Then you top it with granola and then you pour that over vanilla ice cream. Mm. Um, it's sort of a makeshift crumble. Um, <laughs> oh, that was so good. Yeah. Or like, you know, you get the um, – you get the peanut sauce from the stir fry station and the grilled chicken and then you mix that together and then you put it in lettuce and you have like little chicken lettuce wraps. This is brilliant. Um, <laughs> you are your mother's daughter. Yes. Yeah. No. And it was so funny. Like I think the, the highlights of my college career were one on Fridays when the column came out, seeing people with like the column in one hand and in the dining halls, like following <laughs> it to the tea. And then the second thing was I was – it was Halloween and I was in like some fraternity basement and some guy was wearing a trench coat and he'd attached fruit to the trench coat. And I asked what he was for Halloween and he said he was the DDS detective, not knowing <laughs> that – like he thought that – like my byline appeared, but a lot of people thought the column was anonymous. So he was like, I'm the anonymous DDS detective. That's um, funny. And that's sort of when I realized that writing about food was really exciting. I mean these were – 250 word columns that came out every week but that's short it was yeah. it was very short but it sort of it sparked something in me it got me really excited about writing about food um had you ever even imagined it what did you go to dartmouth for what did you major in i was a i was a government major and then i later tacked on french to that and became a double major um I have to say my French major sort of opened me up to the world of food. I took a class about French cuisine. I studied abroad in Toulouse and did my big project on uh, southwestern France cheese. Um, The home of cassoulet. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I ate a lot of cassoulet in Toulouse. Um, But I thought, you know, I was going to be a diplomat. I was going to join the Foreign Service. I I loved learning languages. I did policy debate in high school. I always figured that what I would do would either be in academia or something sort of international policy related. And that still remains something that's really, really exciting to me. Like if I weren't in food, I think I'd be working at a think tank. Nothing gets me more excited than doing research. Ah, Um, (laughs) but I think you're combining that. And I actually may want to talk to you a little bit about the idea of culinary diplomacy. Uh, But in your own crazy way, you are a a diplomat and you are um, doing lots of research all the time. So tell us how you started writing for The New Yorker and The New York Times. Well, I was working at Lucky Peach uh, and my very first job there was I was literally like the customer service representative. So I was the person you called when you needed to update your subscription address (laughs) or, you know, I didn't receive the travel issue. Please send it to me. I was that I was that person. And um, at the time, our staff was sort of split between New York, San Francisco and Chicago. So we'd get asked to come to these events and no one could go. And so I would just go as a Lucky Peach representative. So what ended up happening was I was going to these things and I was meeting all these other people in food media and ended up making a, 
a good amount of contacts in the media world. That's how I met uh, my one of my, my editor at the Times. That's how I met my editor at Bon Appetit. Um, was just sort of like being the per- being like the lucky peach representative at things. And whenever <laughs> we had events, I made it a point to go around and introduce myself. Um, I think. I don't think it was strategic at the time, but looking back, I'm like, that was quite strategic. <laughs> Excellent. I was Wonderful. just like trying to survive and not be the person in the corner eating lamb ribs, which was me at my very first food party for the for the Pock Pock cookbook. I literally sat in the corner of Mission Cantina and ate lamb ribs by myself because I didn't know a single human being. That's so funny. I think I was <laughs> one of the first ones to actually cook lamb ribs I, in my first book, Little Meals, 1993. Believe me, no one was, was making or eating <laughs> lamb riblets in 1993. Um, but I left uh, in 2016 because I wanted to write um, and I didn't want to be on the business and marketing side. And I just started reaching out to those editors that I had made connections with. And I'd never written for them before. I wasn't a proven entity. But, you know, I was very lucky that a few editors took chances on me really early on and helped me sort of build up my clips and help me get better. And one thing kind of led to the next thing. Um, Rather brilliantly, I might add. And I'm so curious to know what your very first pitch was. So we'll get back to that soon. (laughs) Coming up, you'll learn what motivated Priya to pursue this particular story in the New York Times before the holidays, and also to find out what it takes to rise so quickly uh, as a food writer. Darkness falls, mysteries Here's a cooking tip to share. Want to know how to make an amazing lemon vinaigrette? Simply cut two thin slices from the center of a lemon and remove the pits. Put the slices, rind and all, in a food processor. Add one half a cup of olive oil and a pinch of salt, a grinding of black pepper, and puree until ultra smooth. It's amazing tossed over romaine lettuce with feta and fresh dill. That's all there is to it. From my kitchen to yours. Give it a try and pass it along. Priya, I'd like to talk about what motivated you to write this particular story for the New York Times. Um, yeah, so... I knew I wanted to write a Christmas story um, or a holiday story of some sorts. Um, and one of my friends had sort of told me that, you know, in, in, in the Caribbean, Christmas is huge because a lot of those areas are predominantly Christian. Um, and so I just started poking around and um, asking around to chef friends and folks. And lo and behold, an email popped into my inbox saying – have you heard about Jessica Craig? Uh, she is the pastry chef at Lartusi, which is an Italian restaurant that I love in the West Village. And it was like she uh, is Jamaican-American and her mom puts out this incredible Jamaican-American feast every Christmas for her and her siblings. And she has eight siblings uh, <laughs> in Long Island. And, you know, I called and – 
I sort of started talking to her and realized that they had this very – their family had this very complicated history with coming to America and dealing with racism. And through all of their family's struggles, celebrating Christmas altogether was this constant. It had taken on this really important meaning for them, not only as a way to honor their heritage, but a chance to sort of reunite uh, and celebrate um, amidst – a lot of challenges that were happening for them. And, you know, I think it's important to tell really warm, fuzzy, uplifting stories during the holidays, but I think it's also important to tell challenging stories during the holidays. I think that's what affected me so much by this piece. Uh, Obviously, you have a way of making people feel very comfortable. So they really literally and figuratively invite you into their home and their space and tell you very intimate things. Uh, The family uh, did experience a lot of racism. The house burned down. Uh, There was a, a death of a husband and then a divorce and nine children. And uh, I also love the surprise of learning that the daughter was, uh, you know, the head pastry chef at this very, you know, acclaimed Italian restaurant. Um, so what what is your secret? Because obviously you spent quite a bit of time with them and they made you a member of the family. <laughs> <laughs> it felt like. Yeah. You, have a very, you have a very personal, very intimate way of, of writing. I mean, I try to make that personal, intimate I try to bring that into the interviewing part as well. Um, I try to just kind of insert myself into people's lives. I don't want them to do anything different than what they might do. And I just want to be sort of a casual bystander to their lives. Every article I write, I take at least 30 pages of just notes and observations. What were they wearing? How did they move their hands? Um, you see, you are a diplomat and you do do much <laughs> research. And I think there was a metaphor early on in the article that really made me feel so tender and understand more about the immigrant experience because uh, as a young woman, the mother uh, came and she said that she heard that America was paradise. So when she came here and saw it raining, she was so surprised. And I'm thinking, you know, that must be the attitude or the experience or the hope or the ideal for so many immigrant families who actually do come to America. And Priya, you do write for so many different publications. And I see that you do tend to gravitate towards articles about um, either South Asian families or the immigrant experience. And and you're really trying very hard to show us and teach us things about other uh, cuisines and families and experiences. Definitely. I mean, to me, the stories that excite me the most are very often immigrant stories, or at least just stories that I feel aren't well represented in food media. I mean, for so long, food media was dominated by stories about sort of white men running Eurocentric restaurants. And that's just, you know, I've eaten at some some of those restaurants and they're amazing. But in terms of the kind of storytelling I want to do, I'm less interested in that and more interested in these stories that I feel sort of represent the future of American cooking and the future of American tastes. Yes. And I think this is such an important time um, for this kind of storytelling because it connects us certainly to one another and also to our our own lives and and our own memories. So I want to talk a little bit more about you and this idea of One Woman Kitchen because we're all kind of forging our own paths. So do you consider yourself 
a cook or a writer, a recipe tester, or something else? I mean, I consider myself a home cook. A home cook. I'm, I consider myself a writer. I wouldn't say I am a recipe recipe developer when I was working on this cookbook. That was what I was probably the least comfortable with. But uh, I'm also a really hard worker and I'm really methodical. And I believe that you can kind of surmount anything as long as you take a really like detail-oriented methodical approach. So that's what I did with the recipes. Like a true a true <laughs> academic. What are some of your insecurities being kind of young in the game? Um, I mean, I definitely, before I report any article, I just inevitably think this is the one where the New York Times is going to realize that it's that I'm a fraud. <laughs> oh, yes, the fraud feeling. I, I don't know if there's anyone who really doesn't feel that. But. I feel incredible <laughs> imposter syndrome. I fret over every draft that I turn in thinking that it's bad. It's very rare I turn in a draft being like, this is really good. I'm always <laughs> picking it apart. Um, I worry that I'm not I – don't, I don't cook enough for being a home cook. Because I have to eat out so much for my job. Um, I am insecure about how long my sentences are. That's just a thing. So many editors have said, like, you write long sentences and then disguise them with semicolons. <laughs> <laughs> but that depends on the publication, doesn't it? Right? The New Yorker had a particular style for a long time of very, very long sentences. Yeah. But I, people are writing shorter, I suppose. And then I sometimes worry that I'm just not, I'm not literary enough. I'm not learn it enough uh i don't i that you know i'm not reading the books that everyone else is reading i i still really love reading like weird memoirs and ya novels but a part of me has realized that like these things that sort of make me different and not part of the mold the fact that i don't have preserved lemons in my cabinet at all times and <laughs> i think they're quite overrated quite honestly <laughs> and still haven't you know Red pachinko is kind of what what makes me different and maybe what makes me valuable as a writer, too. Exactly. Thank you so much for sharing that. I think it's making all of us feel much better about <laughs> some of our own insecurities. So on the flip side of that, let's talk about your strengths. You mentioned something about being very methodical, organized, and very determined. And, you know, I'm a woman in the food world for 40 years, and I think determination is one of the most important words. So what are some of your, your strengths? What do you really pride yourself on in addition to this organizational <laughs> prowess uh i write great emails i think that this is such an underrated wow. skill and one that i worked so hard to cultivate like i am my all i write emails for all of my friends i am like their email writer i think this is really important and email is often like your first introduction to someone whether that's a source whether that's a publication you want to write for uh a fact checker um Emails can be misinterpreted in so many different ways. You need to write email in a way that sort of makes you come across as like a normal, cordial human being. Um, if you need to make an ask, you have to do it in sort of a polite, not aggressive way. Um, I feel like I'm really, really good at Oh, I at feel another emails. book coming on, Priya's Guide to Email <laughs> and, Etiquette. And I'm also really good at following up. Like I – don't you know i've had many stories in which the person i'm interviewing i want to write about said no i don't want 
to be featured. I don't want to be featured. Like, people say that? Yes. I thought this was everyone's dream. No, no, no. And or some people think they're getting like pranked or something. Um, and I just try to I've just learned that, you know, obviously there's a line between being persistent and being overly aggressive. But um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I feel like I uh, I really persevere. I uh, am I don't for whatever reason, I'm like exceptionally good at just like continuing to to follow up on things and um and sort that's of not a, taking no for an answer. <laughs> okay, so that's a great quality. I just want to know, does that apply to helping friends get dates? Uh, you know, <laughs> you know, that's this that is requires thing. a good email. I would like to think that I'm very good at setting people up, and I've tried setting up countless friends, and I have a zero percent success rate. So I don't know. That might be just a totally different skill set altogether. It's just a different world. <laughs> I have arranged three marriages. It does feel good when wow, it when it works. That's amazing. I know. I know. That's um something that that does feel good. And some of that's about nourishment. So when we come back, I want to talk about what that word means to you. Nourishment. And the gate to the garden of fulfilled desire is reached Follow me on Instagram at Roseanne Gold and check out everything I'm up to on my website at RoseanneGold.com. Priya, I definitely want to talk about the idea of nourishment, uh, but right now I want to give you a piece of cake. <laughs> I baked a cake for you this morning and I would like you to try it. But first, I'd like you to give it a whiff and smell it. As you know, 80% of taste is smell. Okay. So tell me what arises for you, if is anything. Is this the cake that you told me? Is this a cake we talked about at dinner? It might be. <laughs> it's a magic cake. So take a nice deep, deep breath. Ooh. I believe you'll sense some strong fragrance, but not everyone can place it. It's a sweet cake, right? It's a sweet-looking yeah. cake. It is a sweet-looking cake. I want... It and it's looks delicious. crusted in the crumb structure is wonderful. Ooh, the crumb structure. Actually, Priya, are you a good uh, more of a baker or a cook? Cook for sure. Yes, but that's why I meet. I mean, me too. But that's why I'm so impressed about your looking at the crumb structure. Well, <laughs> I'm really honored. It's because my boyfriend bakes, and so as I've told you, he's very obsessed with how the crumb structure looks, and if it's even throughout. And this one looks perfect. <laughs> Mm. So or do you want to guess maybe what uh, that might be? I'm guessing uh, rosemary. Oh, you're good. There's mm -hmm. some sort of citrus situation going on. Is that either <laughs> orange or lemon or something? Okay. Well, we're not going to give it away. I'm just sort of more curious about your ability to smell and detect. And why don't you try a little taste now and, and okay. just tell me what words come up for you. All right. Wow, it's really putting me on the spot here. Well, there's no, there's no right answer. There's no wrong answer. I'm just curious. Mm. It tastes like a rosemary olive oil cake. Wow, mm. that's pretty good. There is a secret ingredient maybe you can detect. Oh, gosh. Oh, I love that, that crunchy sugar coating. Well, you know, what's, yeah, it, it is, has like a little crown of, of pearl sugar, but Again, this is One Woman Kitchen. This is a cake I'm kind of famous for. I wanted to share it with you. I wanted to make something for you. 
But I'm curious who you would like to be sharing this with right now. Mm. Who I want to be sharing this cake with. Yeah. To be honest, my boyfriend, Seth, because he loves baking. And goods. they would talk about the crumb structure. Really would, romantic. Yeah. No, this is, this is what we talk about. We just analyze baked goods together. <laughs> That's so funny. Okay, then, how, then how's this? So your boyfriend is here with you. And I want you to take this cake and make it your own. What would you do? What would you maybe serve it with? What might you add to it? What time of day would you like to be eating this or sharing this with Seth? This would be so perfect with my uh, cardamom chai. Mm. Like I would put cardamom in this, but I think it would be even better if you served it with cardamom chai. And this is a drink? A drink. Yeah, chai. Mm -hmm. uh, Sort of tea, Indian style. It's a... English breakfast tea with milk, sugar, and crushed up cardamom, and it's divine. You can put ginger, you can put pepper, you can do cinnamon, but I just do straightforward cardamom chai. No chunk. No, no <laughs> chunk. Man, that would that would taste very. Although I guess if you could, um, you could temper the spices in butter and put it in, it would be then like that bullet coffee. That trend. weird coffee yeah. <laughs> that's right, with a pat of butter floating on top. Right. Okay, um, tell me more. I would see I, – I, I could see this in the afternoon, which is when my mom and I take our chai break. Um, <laughs> and usually we'll have it with some like cookies or crackers, but this cake would be a perfect thing to have with chai. Wonderful. And in fact, now I'm like, let's get – let's – this is like a – let's get Seth out of the picture altogether. This is like a me moment. This is me <laughs> alone drinking my cup of chai, sitting – I know the corner of my apartment on the couch. Wonderful. Well, we said we wanted to get into your head a little bit more. So (laughs) what are you thinking about? I was actually going to ask you what keeps you up at night, thinking that is. But what will you be thinking about this afternoon while you have this chai tea and this cake? I mean, what's coming up for you? Um, Well, I have a story due today. So (laughs) I've got to file that story. Um, Can you share with us what it is? Sure. Yes. Um, It is about uh, a remote island off the coast of Rockland, Maine called Vinyl Haven. Population 1,200. It's the size of Manhattan, but obviously a much smaller population. And I'm doing a story on the closing of a beloved restaurant on this island where there are very few options for going out and sort of what it means to live on this island that's known as a summer colony during the winter time and how the residents sort of deal with the lack of options for gathering and going out to eat and getting together over food. Um, and what that loss is, is, I mean, that's real grief when uh, yes. an institution such as a restaurant that's been part of one's family and heritage for such a long time closes. It's uh, can be traumatic. But let me tell you, the the real story here is how you get to Vinyl Haven, oh. <laughs> which from New York involves – I guess you could drive to Rockland, but I took a four-and-a-half-hour train to Boston. From Boston, I rented a car. I drove three-and-a-half hours from Boston to Rockland, Maine, parked the car in the Rockland, Maine ferry parking lot, bought a ferry ticket, took an hour-and-a-half ferry to Vinyl Haven – and then oh I made my. it there. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's easy to, to get to Australia. Um, so I'm also thinking maybe I could never be a certain kind of food writer because I don't drive. But look at the determination. Again, that word keeps on coming, coming this up. This was the first time I've ever driven for a story. I prefer not to drive. I'm not – I'm a fine driver, but I'm not – I don't drive often. I live in New York. I have no reason to drive even though I drove in Texas. 
And I was really nervous to the point where my uncle found out I was going on this trip and he bought me one of those little things that you clip to the uh, to your AC vent to put your phone up so you can see the driving directions. My dad sent me instructions on how to drive in snow. I went through the driving directions with uh, my boyfriend who used to live in the Boston area. Like everyone was really rooting for me on this trip. I even like upgraded my car to an SUV because that's what I'm used to driving. My car growing up was an SUV. But it actually was a really peaceful drive. Like I sort of just for three and a half hours, I just listened to music and just thought. This is wonderful. And thank you for letting us know what can really be involved in just pursuing a story in in food. Uh, Do you want to give us the takeaway from that or should we wait to read it? Yeah, I mean, I've just sort of written a draft and and kind of wrapping my head around it. But at first I thought I was going to end the story on a really dark note that they've sort of lost this incredible restaurant in there in mourning. But then I spoke to someone just an hour before I came here and she was a bartender at this restaurant. She said, yes, it's sad, but our community is incredibly resilient. We've dealt with the loss of salt by starting supper clubs at our homes. And she just launched a meal delivery service. She was like, it's sad seeing that empty restaurant, but, you know, but we'll survive. This is fantastic. And I felt like that was a much better note and takeaway than to just end on this note of like darkness and loss, because I think that's true. I think this community is really resilient. Obviously, they go they they literally live on this island where their food options are limited where to get to the hospital you have to literally be like helicoptered out like they are by their very nature adaptable so it makes sense that they would adapt to this too i'm so curious about the menu can you just tell me one or two specialties on this remote island um the menu so they so vinyl haven their primary economy is lobstering so it's a very seafood centric menu so you know some of the menu items were like this popper deli with lobster and spring peas and white wine and steak frites uh, and a burger. They always had a burger on the menu. Um, they would do sort of a shrimp and grits. They would do – they would always have oysters every night with a homemade mignonette. It was just really simple New England seafood-centric fare. Although would, shrimp and grits seems to have migrated from somewhere, right? That's a very interesting dish to, to be on that sure. menu. For sure. I mean it definitely was – I definitely felt like the owner, John, was sort of, what are the all the different ways I can present seafood? He definitely didn't limit himself to a particular cuisine. He just wanted something simple, pared down, highlighting, you know, what the island was known for. But to me, the, the interesting part of the story wasn't the food. And in fact, the restaurant had closed before I even got to the island. So I didn't get to eat there. Uh, I only got to experience this the island lore, after the The folklore fact. of this Yeah, uh, yeah. This and there's a box place. filled with menus in the restaurant itself. Um, and so I just spent an hour sort of going through all these different menus, sort of like time traveling through this restaurant's history. Mm, wonderful. Thank you. Uh, I'm very curious about nourishment. Uh, it's something that I think about in my career, 40-year career. What what does that word mean to you? Is it um, something that you think about? Are you nourishing people while you're cooking for them or writing or maybe there's another word that feels more essential to your work and career right now. I think of it more in the context of of my writing. Like I think – I don't think I'm the best like entertaining host. My mother is the best host. <laughs> she 
is the best host out there. But I wouldn't say I'm like particularly good at being a hostess, um, at nourishing people with my food. I'm I, like I said, like I'm I'm a, I'm a good cook. I'm very good at you know making my mom's recipes. That's what my book is all about. But I really do feel like my writing. I I like I want to do writing that nourishes people. I want to do writing mm. that has heft, that has meaning, that has a social impact, that uses food to look at issues beyond food, whether it's technology or racism or immigration or religion. Um, I want my stories to be stories that even if you're not into food, you're just interested in. They're just interesting stories. So profound because I was also going to ask you, do you just want to keep writing about food? But you already answered that because you're not. You're talking about <laughs> everything else. So, of course, you will continue in this because food is a gateway or really a lens to the other things that you care about so much. Definitely. So I'm really interested in the swoon factor. I Ever since I was young and saw images of melting bricks of ice cream and gumdrops. And I, I, I just love the word swoon. So what's making you swoon these days? Are there new cuisines or ingredients or blogs or maybe uh, people's uh, other people's cookbooks that really are kind of exciting you? Um, well, there's this woman I just wrote about. Her name's Sana Javeri Kadri. And she runs a company called Diaspora. It's a turmeric company, but it's going to become a spice company. And I'm definitely swooning over this because she is one of the first people and she's a queer woman who is sort of disrupting the spice model in India, which was basically built on colon a colonialist model in which uh, all of the money went into the hands of these middlemen and none of it went into the hands of these farmers. Um, and I feel like turmeric has become this craze in America, but – very few of the people selling turmeric actually know where their turmeric is coming from and don't actually know if the people growing the turmeric are benefiting from it. And so, you know, now I'm – I only want to buy my turmeric from diaspora. I didn't – it's a system I – that I sort of knew was broken, but but you don't know it's broken because it's, it's sort of – so many things in India are sort of just these relics of colonialism, um, models that are ripe for, for disruption. And I'm just – really happy to see her doing this it uh it brought me great joy going into her apartment to or her house to interview her and seeing these baby-sized bags of turmeric <laughs> and this is uh, uh powdered or ground or it's i guess ground she, she's not dealing in, in the fresh turmeric yeah uh, she, craze. it's ground it's ground and are there different levels of, of turmeric and different um, so right now, either strengths or health benefits or flavors. Turmeric is hard to describe the flavor of turmeric, or can you? I mean, it's just like a flavor of earth. I would say that more than anything, turmeric is a coloring agent, not a flavoring agent. In Indian cooking, which I feel like people don't re people in in the U.S. don't haven't really understood fully. But what's really interesting, and I learned from her, is that most turmeric made that's sold in the United States um, is called Alipi turmeric. And that's not an actual scientific varietal. It's just a a name that the British gave, like turmeric that met a certain shade. Um, 
And so she's producing actual scientific varieties of turmeric. And so the one she's selling is a turmeric called Brugathy turmeric, which has a high curcumin content, which is the ingredient in turmeric that gives it its antioxidant properties. So you could say her – I mean, that's good medicine. Yeah. Her turmeric is extra extra nutritious. So this is this is making you swoon right now, which is wonderful. I noticed in your cookbook uh, you – use a lot of quinoa, white quinoa. And I was curious whether that was also something that you found in uh, Indian cuisine or that was kind of an adaptation of your mother because she was in America. Oh, yeah. No, there's no quinoa in Indian cuisine as <laughs> far as I know. So. Um, quinoa was a result of my family going to Peru um, in 2004, eating a lot of quinoa, and then it's sort of becoming available in bulk Um you know, obviously I have very complicated feelings about how a lot of the quinoa is cultivated, but um, we just really liked the kind of nutty, chewy texture of it. Um, and if you cook it right, it's delicious. Um, but um, to be honest, and I put this in the book, like this could have happened with any other grain, but my family just for some reason latched on to quinoa. Well, they're not the only one, right? Because yeah. uh, all Americans – Americans think if a little bit of something is healthy and good for you, then a lot of it mm-hmm. is really healthy mm-hmm. and good for you, which is uh, most unfortunate. And I think we wound up hurting the indigenous people of Peru, and that's that's another story for another time. I am definitely not the only one who wants to stay in touch with you. I'm sure others will as well. So what would be the best way for people to – be in touch. So you can visit my website, uh, Um You can also follow me on Twitter and Instagram at PKGourmet, P-K-G-O-U-R-M-E-T. Priya, it has been such a pleasure to be with you. And I would love to have you back on the show, uh, One Woman Kitchen, when your book comes out, Indian-ish. And in the meantime, we will look for your work in The New Yorker and The New York Times and any place else you write because you are bringing us invaluable information from, from all over the world. Thank you so much. Thank you. One Woman Kitchen is produced by Mouth Media Network. Copyright 2019. Follow me on Instagram at Roseanne Gold and check out everything I'm up to on my website at RoseanneGold.com. Thank you for listening. This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle.